Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And this is the New Statesman podcast in a week in which we discuss Douglas Carswell versus Nigel Farage. Why can't they both lose? Harriet Harman and her successes and failures. We love Hazza. And also we have a You Ask Us about the succession to Jeremy Corbyn. Well, Stephen, let's talk for once on proper alien versus predator stuff, right? I love UKIP beef because it's all happening and I hope everybody loses so I can just really relax and enjoy it. Um, Anoush Shikalian uh, is joining us, our senior writer. Um, Anoush, first of all, give us a a recap of of the latest prime UKIP beef. Okay, so it's all been triggered or resurfaced by Paul Nuttall uh, losing the Stoke-on-Trent central by-election and not getting a very good vote share. Um, So that's led to a lot of the infighting that was already existing beneath the surface coming back up again. So we have Aaron Banks, who's the party's main donor, saying that he wants to be chairman. um, And if he can't be chairman, then he'll pull his funding. And he's also said that he wants to be chairman so he can purge figures like Douglas Carswell, who he and Nigel Farage and lots of UKIP are against. And Douglas Carswell is UKIP's only MP. So there's this split that's always been there between Douglas Carswell, Suzanne Evans and Patrick O'Flynn, who used to be their spin doctor, and Nigel Farage and Aaron Banks and that faction, who see them as too sort of ideologically soft, uh, too pro-immigration, too Tory, basically. So those splits have have surfaced. And then we've also had this in- incredible row where it's turned out that Carswell was mocking and perhaps frustrating Nigel Farage's chance at a knighthood. And so Nigel Farage has lashed out at Carswell saying he shouldn't be in the party. And he's called him a Tory posh boy and all sorts of other uh, lovely phrases. Now, and you might not know this, but Douglas Carswell has blocked me on Twitter for mocking him. He's also blocked me on Twitter. Oh, good. Oh, well, I'm missing out. <laughs> well, well, but on this one, I'm firmly team hashtag team Carswell because his sassy reply in the email about whether or not Farage should get a peerage or a knighthood was maybe he should get an OBE for services to headline writers, which in kind of UKIP circles is just about as, as sassy as it gets. But Stephen, no. you... Um, oh. No, this is literally <laughs> okay. the only thing where I could side with Nigel Farage. There is, it, I just think it is impossible to lowball how much hatred in my heart there is for Douglas Carswell yeah when in you know when in 50 years yeah I'm I'm still having to work because of what the government's done to pensions despite having you know succumbed to advanced dementia the the last flickering part of my brain will be consumed with 
world-eating hatred of Douglas Carswell and just everything about him. He just annoys me so much. Because I think the thing is, at least Nigel Farage... One, no, no, whatever you're about to say, no. At least no, Nigel Farage it. just is an honest slime ball, right? As opposed to this kind of continual, oh, it's such a shame that I had to be part of this campaign suggesting that people were, 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 were full of HIV and were coming here. Oh, poor Douglas Carswell, I was tricked into it. And then all is, of the nonsense <laughs> get, gets written about his personal vote. Douglas Carswell has no personal vote. Okay, we vote, can't, no, right? we can't, we know, no, okay. no, no. The put, man is scum. <laughs> <laughs> Put the personal vote beef to bed for a minute. No, the thing I think is true is that I think he's... He's scum, that's what's true. <laughs> is that he has got principles in the sense of he didn't want them to use their short money just to funnel all that into kind of a UKIP slush fund, right? I think he he is kind of... He's, he's definitely a bit more principled, even though I think his principles are largely horrible in terms of parliamentarianism. Right. Whereas I think Farage just really regards being an MEP as a way, as a kind of convenient kind of allowance, basically, from someone to allow him to, to Farage but quite hard. I, just well, kind I, think, of... I, I, I agree more with Stephen. I think Ooh. Carswell is, is, is the bigger cynic here because he left the Tories in that um, very uh, hyped up defection and got loads of coverage for it. But now he acts as if it's sort of an inconvenience that the only party to defect to was was UKIP. Um, this is what I mean about it being alien versus predator, though. There's a, yeah, lot, it's true. there's a lot of hate for both sides. Yeah, and there is a lot of irony and hypocrisy in, in Nigel Farage kicking up such a fuss that he hasn't managed to get a knighthood when he's supposed to be the person who's battling against the establishment. The That's maybe thing, my favourite bit about yeah. all of this, actually. It's like, yeah, stick it to the establishment by joining the House of Lords. Woo! The exciting <laughs> thing is, is Gavin Williamson, the chief uh, whip, who was the person who Douglas Carswell was meant to make entreaties on Farage's behalf to could at any point decide to give Douglas Carswell a knighthood, which this is the one good thing I hope happens to Douglas Carswell, (laughs) because I just think it would be the legit funniest thing if at this point... Douglas Carswell was given a knighthood. Or a peerage, and then he couldn't sit as an MP anymore. No, I also really want Douglas Carswell to try and stand as an independent because he would definitely lose. Because this this is this is the, the thing about him. He defected to UKIP because he was going to lose to them if they ran against him in 2015, right? And he then actually did worse at holding his seat, which he had that by-election thing, than Mark Reckless did, right? No one, no one honks on about Mark Reckless's personal vote. Mark Reckless probably does, but he's in the Welsh Assembly now, isn't he? So it's all worked out very nicely for him. Um, w- the question is kind of where, how much of this is uh, actually based around ideology and how much of base it is, is like who gets to be in charge? Because Stephen, you wrote about the kind of the ideological split in UKIP, which I think is really interesting. But is, I mean, is that a, a big factor or is it basically Farage is like, I am King UKIP? I mean, I think the the difficulty with all sort of is it personal, is it political divides is that they very rapidly become impossible to disentangle. So the Blairites and the Brownites are a really good example. What is the difference between a Blairite and a Brownite in 1994? Mostly it's were you, who, which one were you mates with, were you Scottish? <laughs> but then by 2007, partly because after a while you have to come up with an excuse for the fact you're briefing up against each other. Suddenly you have these often, and actually often, you know, the, the difference between a Blairite and a Brownite is, is, is quite small, right? What, is the, what was the policy difference between Yvette Cooper and Liz Kendall? Basically, it was an Yvette Cooper wanted to go into the uh, 2020 election going, the spending was fine, and Liz Kendall wanted to go, the spending was bad, right? There, there wasn't actually that big of a, a gulf. And so much of that was uh, infused with clannishness. So obviously a large part of it is that Nigel Farage doesn't like to share toys. 
uh, and that is Toys' in question time appearances, so he doesn't like having an MP there, blah, blah, blah. But equally, Nig Douglas Carswell does honestly believe that they would have got more votes in the referendum if they had talked more about free trade. He honestly does think that the, like, oh, the Turks are coming took away votes, right? He that 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 is in, I mean... And I think that that is in some ways the great tragedy of Douglas Carswell. This is a man who genuinely thinks that there are people who, who when they meet him visiting Clacton from his posh home in London, and he goes, oh, the important thing is, is, is a flat tax. Then there are people who've gone, oh, yeah, I, I had never thought of it before, instead of voting for him because he had the rosette than they happened to like. Yeah, he is also best friends with um, Daniel Hannan, who podcast listeners will know from previous rants related to, which I think reflects quite poorly on him. And the fact they are each other's wingmen, I think they kind of bolster each other in, in that. But um, look, should we be writing off UKIP? Like, is this going to be, is this now just a party that is riddled with psychotry? I mean, Aaron Banks says he's going to stand against Carlswell, which is, I don't think is going to happen, but is... It is funny, let's be honest. Yeah, I think he yeah, he's saying it. He probably wants to stand as an independent if he, if he thinks UKIP is going in the direction that he doesn't like, i.e. not having Nigel Farage anymore. Um, I think there is still a, a future for UKIP, but it's probably going... It's only going to be clear after they lose all of their MEPs because they're not going to have any hardly any elected representatives after they lose their MEPs. And therefore hardly any m money either. Yeah, hardly any money. Hardly any elected representatives. They've got a few people in Wales. They've got Douglas Carswell, who most of them don't like. Um, so will they be able to basically go back to the beginning and be a pressure group, uh, a movement with one cause that they successfully achieve rather than a, a, an elect, a, a, a party thought, that depends on elected representatives? Because they they've done it before, so they can do it again. But, but what, it depends on what the campaign for is. For what, I guess, is the thing. If Theresa yeah. May is determined to pursue a really hard Brexit, then actually there's not a lot of space to her right for that party to exist. I guess that's the point. So that's the thing, they have to rally around a different cause or something more specific. And I think, yeah. I, I don't know, I think there's... The thing I'm continually struck by is 4% of the country is still voting green. And very few of them are... There is a, a strong policy case why you'd vote green and not for Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, but very few of that 4% agree with it, right? There is a, just a large chunk of people who, who don't want to vote for a winner. We see that in the 2015 Lib Dem, sorry, 2010 Lib Dem, 2015 UKIP. I think the striking thing with UKIP is the, the, the impulse of, I don't like immigrants and I also don't care about the respectable veneer than, than Theresa May has painted over not liking immigrants. Uh, That's the, what I the, think is really That impulse will still exist. The fascinating thing is if you have a party that is broke, then, I mean, probably, let's face it, they've become so petty that I would actually be more surprised if we get to the end of this parliament without someone in UKIP suing someone else in UKIP. Yeah, this is the thing that's really interesting. Having just read our magazine cover story, which is about far-right parties um, in Europe, and there's a great quote in it by Nigel Farage where he says that Geert Wilders, like, oh, that's a bit, <laughs> calm down, lads. That's a bit much for us. But the way that the, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, the PVV, uh, the party that Geert Wilders is, well, he's the only member of it, which is a kind of crazy system to have. And he doesn't also doesn't really do any interviews apart from with very sympathetic publications. He just exists via Twitter. And there is this kind of interesting model that UKIP could follow there where essentially it is just the Farage party, right? It, it just exists only to service Nigel Farage's media appearances and and him as an entity and and everything else kind of shrivels around it and I agree with you Stephen that that party would become an explicitly anti-immigration party for which there is probably only what do you reckon seven per six seven percent of the country would would, would want to vote for that you know a slightly 
slightly smarter BMP with a more charismatic frontman that slightly takes the edge off some of its policies. Yeah, because it is basically you can you can radiate the the lines of of that type of right wing politics from you know kind of UKIP is I'm not a racist but the BNP is obviously I am a racist and uh, Britain First is I am a racist and I have a Facebook page um, <laughs> and and so they'll yeah the kind of the, the size of that coalition is a movable feast not least because the the intriguing question is whether or not UKIP is a gateway drug for voting for more extreme parties of the right. Part of their success is they ate lots of votes from the extreme right. But there is an interesting question about whether or not people go the other way, particularly as it looks overwhelmingly likely that we are going to head for a fairly chaotic Brexit, right? As, as well as a fairly hard one, we're probably going to tumble out without much preparation for having done so. And there will be a variety of problems. And that Anger is going to... No, I think no one really knows what the consequence of our politics will be on an exit on WTO terms because it's just such a catastrophic thing to happen to your economy Then it just will... There will be political repercussions Yeah, and for that. one of those consequences could be that it's actually a good thing for UKIP because it will make the country poorer. We'll still need immigrants to fill the jobs that we don't have because we're not supplying the skills. They'll see immigrants around them getting jobs and feel like they're not working, the voters, who many of whom voted Brexit. And then there'll be the same resentment there, even though we've been we've taken ourselves out of the European Union. They won't necessarily blame UKIP for that because UKIP didn't actually enact Brexit, whereas the Tories did and Labour nodded it through. So it could be that that resentment remains, yet UKIP don't get punished for it. That is exactly my problem and it's why I wouldn't, although I had previously thought the referendum were a good idea for certain limited things, I don't think I will ever again support one because there's no one's hand, you know, like no one's hands were on the tiller, right? So you got everybody going, well, well, if we'd been in charge of it, obviously it would have been done, but you actually never get, at least the concept of a parliamentary system is somewhat, it is someone's fault if it goes wrong and that's my worry is that they, that they could be it could, like you say, be very chaotic, but actually everybody who supported Brexit will claim that if only they'd been in charge of it, it would have been, been great. Yeah. Exactly, I, yeah. I also think Brexit was a uniquely bad subject for a referendum, partially because of... Actually, I think the gulf between Nicola Sturgeon and the concerns and beliefs of the average person who voted yes in the Scottish referendum is actually not that large. Whereas, yeah, the, the weird thing is, is, you know, what, what does Douglas Carswell agree with and the kind of average Leave voter? Nothing. In fact, Douglas Carswell holds the average person who voted to leave in a great deal of contempt, right? He well, doesn't... In a way that he gets really defensive if... And you can, sell, you can tell from the defensiveness of that, don't you think? Yeah. That there, it, is, it is exactly those people who are really worried about being seen as kind of elitists. Well, it, the thing I find really striking is whenever you kind of go... Well, if someone's old and they don't have a degree, probably they did vote to leave. A, a certain type of very posh, very politically influential lever will get really agitated with you as if the words old and no degree are innately negative qualities, right? I think we can all agree. I think we let's, yeah. let's all agree by saying that in the sort of celebrity death match between Nigel Farage and Douglas Carswell, we hope that they both lose. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In this week's exciting Super Soar Away New Statesman, uh, you have profiled uh, Harriet Harman. Yeah, it's something that I've been wanting to do actually since just before the 2015 election. Do you remember that? that time when we thought she was going to be the next uh, Deputy Prime Minister. Oh God, um, it's still too painful. <laughs> and I went on the pink bus to Leamington Spa. It was great. It was a, it was a lovely day out in a, an election campaign that was always pretty rubbish. Um, we passed a baby round where we talked to people about managing childcare around their work. Ed Balls turned up with some cupcakes with rum in them. Um, and a good time was had by all. But I wanted to write this piece for a while because... I made a contention in it that I think probably will make people feel very angry. Well, two contentions I think will make people feel very angry. The first is that she's an anti-establishment politician. It's just the way that we use the phrase anti-establishment politician usually means I sort of agree with them, but I think they're a bit too extreme for me. Um, Whereas she has always fought the establishment from the inside. And the second is that she's the most successful left-wing politician of her generation in terms of achieving what she went into politics to do. So come at me, bro. I mean, so on the anti-establishment thing, I think, yeah, particularly when you, and yeah, one of the reasons why I strongly urge people to read the book, when you actually think about the condition of women in, in, in politics, in society generally, the, there are lots of, small is the wrong word, but there are lots of rights that actually already one takes for granted than just didn't exist and only exist because of, of Harriet Harman, right? Not least the fact that she has had a transformative effect on the composition of the Parliamentary Labour Party in a way that basically I can't think of a single politician with a better claim in the history of the Labour Party, right? You know, not just her her generation, but obviously, you know, Tony Blair failed in a hilarious fashion to get his people into Parliament and to remodel the PLP. Gordon Brown had slightly more success, but emphasis on the word slightly. Uh, and actually, the first generation of ethnic minority MPs still really struggled, and Labour, I think, still has a real problem some, in, in some of its seats with getting ethnic minority MPs well, or the, candidates selected. The, the big, yeah, the, the big battle that, um, obviously, I, I did my big profile of Diana Elizabeth, and the big battle, that I, the quote that I couldn't get in from, I can't remember who it was, but... The, the one of the big demands of, of, of black sections and of Labour BAME now is that if you have a, a policy where you you basically go, well, we're only going to select minorities in majority minority seats, you are never going to have a parliamentary Labour Party which reflects the amount of diversity of the of the actual existing Labour vote. So, you know, Birmingham, great example. Um Birmingham is a, a very diverse city, and if to, in terms of the people who vote Labour in Birmingham, it is an even more diverse vote. But it only has two uh, ethnic minority MPs, and they both represent the only two seats which are majority minority, as opposed to the rest where you have kind of a plurality of white voters. But mm. actually, you know, it's yeah, it's got forty eight percent white or whatever, and it, it you kind of see it throughout um, th- throughout Labour seats. Whereas 
it is very difficult and one of the many um, headaches for the Labour leadership about boundary changes is it is going to be very hard to break in a large way the kind of harm and rule that you at the least have to have an all-women shortlist when a woman is standing down. You, you, you can't reduce the number of women unless you're, uh, uh, you're, unless you're above 50-50. Uh, um, and yeah, in terms of the stuff she did at the NCCL, now Liberty, you know, this is someone who, who sued the government over a period of decades uh, to, be, to be struck down. She is a much more complex political figure than people, right? I'm going to push back slightly on the more most successful of her generation in terms of her legacy outside of the party, because there is a generation which includes uh, Blair and Brown, right? Yeah, but uh, I think one of the things that comes... I don't think Gordon Brown emerges at all well from the book. I mean, I couldn't fit this in the interview, but there's a story in the book where she talks about Damien McBride, who's then Gordon Brown's spin doctor, briefing against her at a party conference hotel on the balcony above her room, and she confronted him, and he, he withdrew that. And she said to me, you know, um, John Prescott was always quite hostile to her in terms of he didn't want her to, you know, he didn't particularly want to help her out when she succeeded as deputy leader of the party, but he said, you know, but the difference between him and Damien Brown, I wouldn't even put, um, Damien McBride, I wouldn't even put them in the same sentence. And actually, some of the other people that I talked to around about that Brown era they really, when someone said, you know, at that point there was something rotten in the heart of the Labour Party. Um, and she came through th that period, not unscathed, but I think you have to look at the Equalities Act in the context of how difficult it was to be outside the Brownite circle and get anything done at that time. Yeah, I think the Equalities Act, I mean, as well as the fact that it's a great bit of legislation, uh, even more so if you, not just the things which are in it that the Conservatives haven't, uh, frozen or not done, obviously, clause one is, is hugely important. But the stuff which actually exists and is being enacted, it is a really great piece of legislation. Um, I'm, you know, obviously a, a huge fan of her, but, you know... She isn't Tony three. Blair. She isn't Tony Blair. But this and is but this is why I think it's in terms of what she went into politics to achieve, right? She didn't. She wasn't somebody who went into politics with this kind of grand. Let's all get you know elected and do this, that, and the other. She and it's it's one of the reasons that people find her really frustrating. But I think also one of the reasons that she's been so successful is she is a, she is a kind of single issue battering ram. Someone who worked with me said, you know, I've got somebody in my local party for the last 20 years has turned up and just asked a question about sustainability. And we all kind of go, oh, right, it's the sustainability bit. And that's kind of what she was like when she would go, and what about women? Um, and and she did that, you know, she did that for 30, she's done that for 30 years in Parliament. And I think that's her success. But it's also, she's, you know, you're right, she's not as successful in, as Blair in terms of the sort of a, a broad sweep of what she's tried to do, to, to do. Her success has been quite narrow. But yeah, I think it is striking how badly Gordon Brown comes out of the book. He comes out quite well at the beginning, but you do... And obviously it clearly was a very dark time, and you, you whenever you talk to people who are around in that period, they, they do sort of bear... But don't you think this is interesting, is that as all this hatred for Tony Blair, and Tony Blair ruined the Labour Party, Tony Blair asked all these votes, and actually I think that in terms of some of the things that we're now seeing that are problems in the Labour Party, actually the later Brown years are almost um, are much more to blame. Yeah, I mean, I also think... Hmm. Don't you think Tony Blair gets over-criticised and Gordon Brown gets under-criticised? So, yes and no, right? So, one, my kind of single transferable take is every third-way party, yeah, so, so every social democratic party that 
achieved power in the noughties and nineties did so by basically going, look, we're not going to challenge this model. We're just going to redistribute it. And they have all had massive electoral problems and difficulties on their left flank, whether internally or externally since. So in an odd way, I kind of think at that stage, going, oh, the problem was what Tony did or what Gordon did, kind of feels a bit like there was clearly a wider story going on. But on the other hand, you're completely right in that, you know, this, this meme of, oh, Labour lost 5 million votes since 1997, it, it's it's bizarre to treat 1997 as your baseline for the Labour vote. Not a high it, it, you know, kind of, You can do exactly the same with Clement Attlee from 1945 to 50, but actually you should start the Attlee clock from 1935 and him taking over this absolute wreck of... Uh, a political party, yeah. It, it just—it's an odd time to to start the uh, to start the, the the counter, and and Gordon Brown was responsible for an era of which I don't think was at all helpful. Of the kind of Brownite approach was you control the shortlist and you force the left to vote for you, right? You basically put yourself a, a millimeter to the right to the left of the Blairite. And you go to the left, well, look, it's me or this guy, what are you going to do? And I think this was problematic for a lot of reasons. One, because it meant that no one really defended or explained what the Labour government was doing in a left-wing way. There was... N- if, you, if you think about how the success in moving the cultural argument to the left in the New Labour era, and then compare that to the complete failure to move the economic argument... So they did a lot of redistribution, but they didn't talk about it or really explain why they were doing it. And I think a lot of that tactic of sitting slightly to the left of, of Tony Blair is why that happened. But also The second that- is it also is why there's a brain drain on the left of the party, right? One of the big problems for the Corbynites is they have that central trio, which really matters of 60-somethings, John, Diane, and Jeremy himself. They have in parliamentary terms, a bunch of toddlers in the 2015 intake, including some of them who are actually also in their 60s and share his politics. What they... I'm not saying it would fix all of their problems, but lots of things in the Labour Party which are quite fraught at the moment would be less so if there were more people who had been... who'd come in in 2001 and 2005. And 2001 and 2005 even more so, the story of those selections was their utter domination by the Brownites. Ed Ball, Sharon Hodgson, etc, etc. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's really true. And that's why I, that's the background against which I would contrast um, Harriet Harman's kind of governmental career in terms of things that she got done. But as you say, there are lots of things there that we just absolutely take for granted. I mean, she did some really interesting work when she was Solicitor General around the better conduct of, of rape and domestic violence um, charities. For example, introducing these independent domestic violence advocates who are outside of the police but support mostly women as they go through the court system. And we know that there's a really big problem with people not wanting to you know, pursue prosecutions, for example. And they've done some you know, really important stuff about, let's be honest, banging up some pretty nasty guys who would otherwise be beating up their wives in front of their kids. Um, and, and that stuff, I think, is is a great labour achievement that you kind of don't ever hear about any anymore um, because it's kind of women's stuff. But the other thing that really came strongly um, through my profile and I, uh, from talking to people, which I think is still worth talking about now, is the tension in the party between working-class men and middle-class women. 
Um, and actually that manifests itself as a slight tension between the women's movement section and the trade union section, the trade union being particularly quite blokey. Um, and I think that's still a kind of long-running division, actually, in, in the party. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so we should talk about this and then we should also talk about the welfare bill. But uh, the 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 thing, I think, with that is, I have a lot of time for Stella Creasy, but the line she always uses, which I just always annoys because I just think it's not true, and I think people know it's not true, is the everyone benefits from more gender equality. Well, well, they don't because in our current system, there are men who are not good enough to hold their job. Yeah, actually, any demand for equality in, in aggregate, we might all be better off, but there are always people with money or uh, people with, uh, with, with, with testicles or in some cases both who are holding posts that they are not equipped to hold, right? And actually, they are under threat. And you know, a, a senior trade unionist who is themselves a woman put it very well, and she said to me, the difficulty is it can't ever be my position that any of my members should lose their jobs or be replaced by someone else, right? That that erodes fundamentally the the point of what it is that I am here to do. Oh, yeah, and also because the fundamental insight of feminism, which is that, you know, whoever has economic power has cultural and social power, right? So if you're a guy in a, you know, in a factory job 30, 40 years ago, your wife doesn't work, you earn a kind of family wage that supports everyone, then actually, you know what, you have a huge amount of power in your household to say, I want my dinner in, on the table, you know, you do this with our kids, like, I go out to work and this is how I want things to be. And I think that has sort of changed a bit, and I think particularly for older men who might have lost their jobs they're working in a place where the only jobs are kind of what we call pink collar jobs you know it's sort of nail salons or uh, customer service roles that seem to be more kind of stereotyped towards women that has been a really big change and I think that's something that we probably uh, is underappreciated but let's talk about the welfare bill because you and I have had this conversation before and I like I say I feel sad about the welfare bill, but it's interesting the book, the, the circularity of it, because what was Harriet Harman's downfall at the DSS under Tony Blair when she first became a minister um, in that government is that they had, Gordon Brown in fact, had committed to maintaining Tory spending limits for two years, and that means she had to cut lone parent benefits. This was phenomenally unpopular and was what led to her sacking. And you know, she said to me, and if I'd been a bit more politically experienced, I probably would have said, this isn't just my problem, I'm going to make this everybody's problem. If we've got to meet this limit, maybe we find the money somewhere else. But fast forward to, you know, summer of 2015, and it was exactly the same thing. Labour didn't want to seem profligate, it wanted to stick to its manifesto pledge, it didn't want to open up a dividing line with the Tories to be seen to be tough on welfare, and she took the same decision. I know, so I don't think they were the same decisions, not least because... In 1998, the Labour government did actually cut lone parent benefit. Right, that that was a, a a real a real change that actually affected real people's lives. Whereas the opposition party, how it votes on 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 any legislation, right? Every, everything the opposition should do should refract through two prisms. Is this going to inconvenience the government and make people and change people's lives today? And how does it allow us to do that in the future? So obviously, Ed was brilliant. He, like Ed Miliband was, I think, a, one of the best opposition leaders week to week. It was just every month was terrible. Uh, and, you, and you can imagine how he'd deal with business rates. Say he'd go, oh, we'll pay for it with a banker's bonus tax again. And then it would have been another spending commitment and in 2015 when the Tories turned around and went, but mate, you've spent the banker's bonus tax eight billion times. So I think, 
I also I don't think that the welfare bill really changed the leadership election in terms of the polling I saw in terms of the what was happening in CLP nominations. The big difference was it, it, it damaged Andy Burnham. And I think it possibly did change Andy's ability in 2016 or now if I think if Andy Burnham had voted against it, he might have become Labour leader. I doubt it. It's possible. But I think the big thing is it would have meant that Andy Burnham in 2016 or now would be a, a unifying figure who could hold the whole Labour Party together, mm. right? But actually, one, that's kind of Andy Burnham's fault for being a ditherer. But two, that was sort of the point of the vote, right? The point of the vote was that then, then people saw Harriet as a, a grandee who was no longer party political because they knew she was stepping down. And then she thought um, that what she could do by whipping the vote that way on the welfare bill was send a message to people that Labour was doing something slightly different without it actually costing anyone anything and allowing the new leader to slip behind, slipstream behind her without them having to make a policy sacrifice. I still think the political calculation there was 100% correct, right? Um as, as, as the lone defender of both that and uh, Article the 50. Article 50 second reading vote. Well, uh, look, her, I mean, her analysis of it is that if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. That there was a lot of discontent with the end with, with Labour at the end of the Brown government. It was felt it was running out of steam. That was then, because Cameron only won in a coalition, that was then a kind of, well, this is a very fragile, yes, a Tory government, but a very fragile one. We might be back again. And then when Ed Miliband lost, the kind of, we just need to keep it together for one more heave thing, that dissolved at that point and actually a lot of pent up a kind of anger about what people had seen as the compromises. I just honestly think that the first YouGov poll, not the first public one, but the first YouGov poll uh, that, that we published details of on the NS website was taken the day of the Newsnight debate. Members loved Jeremy Corbyn at first sight. And why, if you think about that first Newsnight debate, Liz Kendall seemed like a robot, Andy Burnham seemed like a robot who'd been programmed to say it was from the North. No one knows what Yvette Cooper said, uh, and she was entirely anonymous. And then Jeremy Corbyn was fresh, he was dynamic, he, you know, he, he, he spoke like a human being. I, I just think the, the answer to when did Jeremy Corbyn win, I think basically does end on at 12.30 or 12 o'clock when he got the 35th nomination. I, yeah, I think that's an underappreciated thing that actually that you know you can go and recriminate about whatever happened but actually if he'd been kept off the ballot i don't necessarily think the party would be in a much better position i mean it might have picked it, you know it might be it might i mean be, i disagree I be, and then it would have been it would be bleeding i think but i don't think it would be well again right it's, at the moment i think it's it's dying i think then it would have been it would have had a severe wound but actually in a way it might be better well, who knows i this is a terrible prediction to make i almost feel it might be better to go through real soul searching on everybody's part about what they believe the point of the labor party is rather than kind of just patch it up and keep the show on the road for a few more years i don't know i just think that to return to you know to return to my recurring theme about jeremy corbyn and uh europe i just think labor would be better off if it had a leader who we might still be in was, the european union a, so oh no I, I think we'd have left anyway but i just think if a leader who who was pro-european who wouldn't have said activate article 50 now on the th thursday of the referendum because the difficulty is every decision they've made since then has made sense, but it's been from that position of weakness. If if you had someone who could more honestly go, look, I am I am with you, you people who supported staying in the EU. I'm one of you. 
The difficulty is, I think if there was someone who could say that plausibly, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn would have won. So it's a bit like um, mm. going, if there was, you know, if Jesus had been on the ballot, Jesus wasn't available. Now it's time for... You Ask Us. And you've asked us a question about... So Owen Jones has written a Guardian column. Um, as readers of my column and listeners to this podcast will know, he has been quietly... Um, drumming going, up support for Clive Lewis. Come on, yeah, say Yeah, drumming it. up Banana support bear. for Clive Lewis. And he's kind of semi-come out uh, for him today, saying what needs to happen... Jeremy Corbyn should stand down, and in return, the Parliamentary Labour Party should put an MP from the younger generation. Who can say who it might be? Who could this be, yeah? Uh, someone called, I don't know, Live Cluis? Yeah, it's a mystery. Um, and the question people are asking us is, is this a good idea? From whose perspective? I mean, I think from the Labour Party's perspective, I kind of think that my... So my, my par- final parting of the ways with Jesby Can came when he didn't stand down when he lost the confidence of the PLP. And I think that it's not too much of an ask to have a leader who has got the confidence both of his party and the membership. And that's kind of what you should strive for. So on that basis, I sort of do feel a kind of that actually Clive Lewis would be a trade-up on that if he was indeed the, the choice of the PLP and um, and the membership. Because at the moment, this is not working. On the other hand, I just don't see what's in it for for the Corbyn faction. Because Clive Lewis is no longer in that tent, is he? Well, I, that's, I think what I don't understand about it is that it would... It... <laughs> I mean, one, and this is part of the kind of intellectual decay on the right of the Labour Party, right? Is this is then a failure to make an argument for parliamentary democracy qua parliamentary democracy, right? The leader of the Labour Party ought to be able to command the support of at least half their MPs plus one, right? Clive Lewis does not, therefore, probably shouldn't lead the Labour Party. One of the advantages of both Ed Miliband and uh, David Miliband is they had large chunks of the parliamentary party behind them, and whichever one would have the one people would have would have uh, fallen behind them. That is why lending nominations, regardless of who you lend them to, is just a stupid idea. Um, but I think the flip side of all that is there are there are some people who kind of know that Jeremy is not going anywhere but have said certain things on the record so they feel they can't they know they can't do interviews without being asked is Jeremy Corbyn a disaster so they just have gone into hiding who under Clive Lewis they would be able to go back to the Miliband era thing of everyone kind of grinning and bearing it and hoping that if they push hard enough it works all right so i mean i think would it be better for the election I, I doubt it, although he, he it does have the correct position, in my view, on Article 50, vote, vote for on the second reading and against on, on the third. So maybe, but I think it would only work if people wanted to support Clive Lewis. You, you can't lend... Lending nominations is a bad idea. That well, also, my... there is the point about the membership, which is that the, what they re- explicitly rejected in 2015 was the idea of compromising and losing again. And actually, do they want Clive Lewis or do they want Jeremy Corbyn? And are you then, therefore, asking them to, to compromise in order to... I mean, no shade to Clive Lewis, but it's a big mountain for anyone to climb. So it would be another situation where you ask people to compromise to lose. But I guess the TLDR is that's a great strategy if you're Clive Lewis... And you just want to become Labour leader and that's the end of your ambitions. But probably from everyone else, it's not 
a great idea. Yeah. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and my colleague, Helen Lewis. Love the podcast? Like us on Facebook, and then you can get extra video content in which we discuss still further the issues of the podcast. The music is by the Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. Our producer is India Bork, and it was mixed by James Shields. 